Hey guys, what is up? Welcome back to Flourishing with PTSD, a podcast designed to normalize conversations around mental health, specifically in the context of PTSD, also known as post-traumatic stress disorder. If this is your first time tuning in for an episode, I would like to personally welcome you. If you are a regular listener or someone who occasionally pops in for an episode here and there, welcome to you as well. I want to take a moment and just commend you congratulate and applaud you for all and everything that you are doing to help yourselves through this time when it comes to your mental health. That could be listening to this podcast, prioritizing self-care like a bubble bath, reading a self-help book, exercising, seeing a therapist, talking out your feels with a friend, taking a much-needed day off work, eating that extra piece of pie, or drinking four glasses of water. Whatever you're doing to make you yourself a priority. No, that is not selfish. No, that is not bad. That is what is right on the money, my friend. Okay. (laughs) Um, This is also where I tell you that I am not a medical professional in any capacity. I am not any kind of doctor. I am, however, a person with personal experience and insight as a graduated psychology student. Again, that does not qualify me in any way to be a doctor or a therapist, but it, again, does give me some additional insight. If you have not heard my story, you can find it on an earlier episode. My name is Manda. I am the host. And after putting a trigger warning on this episode, I am excited to get into the thick of it with you. Well, I don't know about you guys, but January was literally the longest month of my life. Like seriously, I may have been living in an alternate universe, but it took 10 years for January to get on with its life and bring me February. Also on the list of complaints for the day um, is that I have hit my extreme COVID fatigue. I am heavily introverted. I'll say it. Yes, I am an introvert. But y'all, let me tell you, Even I am ready to get out there and socialize it up a little bit. Yes, I said, y'all, no, I am not, like, I am from Washington, so, like, I really shouldn't be saying that, but, I mean, it's just, that's just what we're doing today, I guess. Um, Everyone around me is probably so sick of hearing me say this, but I have cabin fever, and I've got it bad. Like, I need to get out of my house and go somewhere that is not work or the grocery store. I mean, literally, a field trip to the grocery store, it just doesn't do it. It's just not the same. Um... Now, I will say I did go for a hike the other day and a whole bunch of you commented on my Instagram story um, loving on me and I just want to say thank you so much, you guys. You are just so great. You seriously just, you don't miss a beat when it comes to building me up, answering the polls that I give you guys or the questions that I put out there. And we have some really great conversations and I just want to tell you that you all are giving me so much life right now. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for just being my best buds. Um, And if you haven't hopped onto our Insta community, please follow the account at flourishing.with.ptsd. We are thriving over there. And no, I'm not on Facebook. I'm so sorry. I had to delete my account personally um, because it was just becoming too much of a toxic place for me. And um, yeah, I had to jump ship. Um, Another thing too, before I get into today's episode, is that you guys have been listening to episodes like crazy. I checked the stats the other day and I was so shocked at how many more listens were coming in. So keep doing what you're doing. Keep sharing it with your friends and family. Write reviews on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else. That helps this podcast be heard by more people. And if we know anything, it's that this conversation is too important not to have. 
okay? And I think this episode is really going to um, shine a new perspective on mental health and mental illness. And so I'm really excited for today's episode. So let's get into it. So I know I left you all kind of hanging with the new diagnosis episode, um, the comorbidity and all that, where I talked to you guys about adding an eating disorder to what I am now feeling is my buffet of disorders, as I call it. And I have to say that I felt super out of my element recording my thoughts around the eating disorder side of things, because for one thing, as you know, I am new to this territory. Like you guys are hearing this firsthand of how I'm processing this. And it's hard to keep myself engaged with this topic in particular, which again, is part of my problem. But It was super important to me to bring that to the table, like this conversation around comorbidity, which basically means that there are two or more disorders present in a patient. Um, Comorbidity is so common. It's nothing to be ashamed of if this is resonating with you. Absolutely no shame there, okay? And it's not just with PTSD. Full disclosure, I haven't I just haven't talked about it a whole lot on this podcast. And I guess this was just a nudge that I needed to talk about it. And again, like it's just so, so important and so common. In fact, I would say it's probably more common than um, having PTSD by itself, in all honesty. Um, But since I've recorded that episode, it's been a while now. I have been going through quite a struggle since then. And I promised you guys that I would share a bit of this journey with you. So again, I will do my best to convey this um, as I'm going through it rather than later on. However, I do still want to keep this in the context of PTSD because that's where I'm comfortable speaking from. Um, so I saw this post earlier today and I reposted it on my Instagram page because the validity of it was so powerful for me. It was one of those pictures that compare two pie charts, you know, like the circles where you divide them based on the math that you are trying to represent. Um, And the first pie chart on the top of the image was shaded completely yellow, like it was just one single color with a key next to it, like the little key that tells you what each color or symbol means and it said that the yellow part of the circle represents what people actually think PTSD or sorry it represents what people think PTSD looks like and it described people of people thinking of PTSD as the excuse that people use when they just quote can't get over a problem end quote um and then the pie chart below it was titled what PTSD actually is And then it was sliced up into a whole bunch of different sections with different colors to represent, you know, unwanted memories, negative self-image, hypervigilance, emotional distress, sense of threat, intrusive thoughts, avoidance or isolation, memory problems, anger, guilt, sleep problems, nightmares, anxiety, depression, batteries not included, and other disorders sold separately. (laughs) Sorry, that's, that's totally my dark humor. I apologize if that offended you. It's just, I guess, how it's one of my coping mechanisms, I guess. I apologize. Um, (laughs) But I want you guys to think about something. Um, Because going through this process of trying to uncover how I got to this point of having a disorder for the second time in my young life, I would say that it has felt very traumatic. And it has taken me some time to really adjust to this new reality. Um, I feel like my life is getting completely rebalanced and I have to re-examine a lot. 
Um, and I'm sure you guys have all been there at some point. Even if you don't have a disorder that is diagnosed, I'm sure that you have been at some point in your life in a position where something in your life totally changed and you had to readjust, you had to reevaluate, you had to rethink some perspective. We've all been there. Um, the reason I bring up those that post with the pie charts is because it brings up such a valid point, and that's this. What does mental illness look like? And I want you to close your eyes or pause for a second and just think to yourself, what does mental illness look like to you? And I'll give you a second to think about that. Does the image of a veteran come up at all? Or what about someone who is homeless and living on the street? Was it someone crouched in a corner crying? Was it someone strapped to a bed in a hospital? These are all some of the stereotypes that came to mind for me personally when I used to think about what PTSD looks like or looked like. Those are the stereotypes, and I'm not saying that everyone's story is that, right? Nor is it entirely accurate. And I want to connect some dots, so hang in there with me. But if we think of some of the most common stereotypes for mental illness, those are probably a few that I just listed. Veteran, homeless, um, crying in a corner, kind of like unable to function, and maybe someone in a hospital, maybe strapped down to a bed or something. Like those are the stereotypes, like whether we've seen them in the media or in movies, like that's, that's a lot of what I think some of the imagery that comes up for us. And I want to be clear that I have complete respect for the veterans who serve and have served our country and the devastation that I feel for those who have been through the traumas of combat is at the highest degree. I also respect the fact that that is what it took. That was a step that was necessary to get the research that we have about PTSD today. That was a very crucial point. And again, I have the utmost respect for veterans. Absolutely. Um, and I am in no way trying to minimize a veteran's experience of PTSD, nor am I minimizing the life of someone who is living on the street. I don't know everyone's story, and I'm not going to rush to a judgment about someone that I just don't know, about a story that I don't know. And I will not lead listeners on this podcast to do the same either. There is no shame in checking yourself into a mental hospital or getting checked into a mental health facility if that's what it takes to help you survive. There is nothing wrong with crying it out so that you can continue to process whatever it is that you're going through. Life was not promised to be easy. And I want that to be very clear. And if you don't agree with me on like some of these stereotypes and like the fact that we don't need to feel shame if that is us, if you don't agree with that, I'm not asking you to. You are allowed to have your own opinion. You may have different stereotypes for me, and that's fine. The point of this podcast is not to convince you one way or the other. The point is to put out the content that will perpetuate the conversations that need to be happening. I'm not saying what's right. 
So I just want that out there and I want that clear. So now that it is, hopefully, I want to get back to that question that I asked earlier. What does PTSD look like? What does mental illness look like? And we can extend that too to uh, what does someone with an eating disorder look like? Now, when I disclose to someone that I suffer from PTSD, now and then I come across a person whose first response (laughs) is, quote, really? You don't look like someone who would have PTSD. I never would have guessed. Oh, man. The number of directions that I could take this. I could go into this whole long explanation on the psychology side of things where I tell you about how someone's heuristics of PTSD just totally failed them and just straight up maybe have not been developed, but I'm not going to bore you with that. When someone responds with, you don't look like you have PTSD, my brain starts reeling and it's just like, well then what does it look like then? If you don't think that I look like someone who has PTSD, well then what does it look like? And I don't have the guts to ask someone that straight up and like I'm working on it for sure. Someone will be my guinea pig down the line and well, we'll see how that goes. But I mean, really though, if someone tells me that I don't look like someone with PTSD. First of all, that's just like super, like that's super invalidating because then I feel like I have to match what they think PTSD looks like. And that's not realistic, right? And truth be told, and you guys have heard me say this, I used to love getting that response from people and I don't want to come across as inconsistent, okay? You guys have heard me say it. I loved, I loved it when people said, that they couldn't tell that I had PTSD. I loved it when they said that because that was, to me, that was actually validating. That was a reward for me hiding my pain and that it was a positive thing that they couldn't see me suffering. It was a good thing that they were seeing me on my better days, that I was doing well, I was feeling consistently good. And because I was feeling good, they witnessed me as mentally well and therefore would never picture me having PTSD, and that was gold. I felt a reward for looking very okay. And let me tell you, that is super damaging, and I learned that the hard way. That actually sent me to rock bottom, if I'm being honest. I saw it as a good thing, but I realized that I was only helping the problem of society not being able to recognize PTSD, or rather, I was allowing people to keep their stereotypes for PTSD. And let's also be real that the whole responsibility does not fall on any one person to explain to society what PTSD does or does not look like. Okay, that does not depend only on me or you or that friend you know with PTSD. No, no, it takes a village. Okay. It is not up to one person to explain to the world what PTSD looks like. It is on every single one of us to educate ourselves and to not rush to judgment. And I think it's so important to ask ourselves that question. What does mental illness look like to me? I'm going to give you some stats right off of the mental health disorder statistics page from hopkinsmedicine.org. Quote, 
An estimated 26% of Americans ages 18 and older, about one in four adults, suffer from a diagnosable mental disorder in a given year. Another quote is, many people suffer from more than one mental disorder at a given time. In particular, depressive illnesses tend to co-occur with substance abuse and anxiety disorders. Another quote, approximately 9.5% of American adults ages 18 and over will suffer from a depressive illness, major depression, bipolar disorder, or forgive me, I can't pronounce the last one, but if you want to read it, you can find it on the website. I have it linked in the details for this episode, but they suffer 9.5% of American adults ages 18 and over will suffer from a depressive illness each year. 9.5%. One in four. Of course, no one statistic is going to be completely comprehensive. But what does this data tell us? One in four American adults suffer from a diagnosable disorder in a given year. And that's just what we know of. I would definitely be interested in looking into the stats of other countries and how uh, there may be cultural differences in there as well, because that's definitely a factor in how we perceive uh, mental illness, of course, and what we also define as mental health. Um, so with that being said, when someone asks, what does mental illness look like? Well, it looks like the average person you encounter every day. Chances are you're talking to someone that does struggle with some form of mental health struggle. And we need to be gentle with ourselves and with each other. Could you imagine what the world would be like or what your life would be like, how it might be different today? If it was a normalized part of our conversation to talk about mental health struggles and not only be absent of judgment, but to be met with support, validation, and even some celebration what would that look like? Because let me tell you something. We don't know everyone's story. So we cannot act or judge like we do. What if that grumpy person living on the street that you pass every day or every now and then on the corner made a courageous decision that you don't know about? What if they came to the point in their life where they had to make a choice? Do I choose something to take away the pain so that I can keep my life? Or do I take away my life so that I can escape the pain? And I have a great deal of compassion in my heart for survivors of trauma, not just the homeless, but for the spectrum of survivors out there who choose, choose anything to keep their life. I am devastated for those who couldn't make that choice. I am devastated for them. But no two people wear mental illness the same, nor do they have the same journey of getting to that point. Compassion can save the world, you guys. It can save the world. Mental mental illness has a version that looks like me. I have a full-time job. I graduated high school and I graduated college with a very high grade point average. 
I laugh and I smile and I break my back for other people. Like I have the capacity of God or something, which I don't because I still try to do it, but I burn out and I burn out often. When someone asks me how I'm doing, I respond, oh, you know, can't complain. Life's good. How are you? And I always show up to work on time. My sleep quality is minimal and poor. My anxiety is through the roof most of the time. But if someone around me is anxious or if I feel like someone around me would exploit my anxiety, I appear very calm and confident. I have been suicidal. I have also loved life. I have made it to a point. Sorry. I have made it a point to have mental health conversations literally everywhere I go. I don't care if people think I'm nuts or that I take it over the top with how important I view it. I don't care because it is important. It is beyond how much I care about how I come off to other people. Having mental health conversations is way more important than how I think people are judging me personally. But that's also where I'm at. Not everyone is there. But since I'm there, I will open up that conversation. I will plant the seeds. I'm successful and I have a family and friends that love me, but I'm still suffering. Now, that's not to say that I'm suffering every single day or in the same way or at the same severity. I've come a long, long way and there's so much to celebrate in that. And I am so proud of myself for getting through every obstacle that I've gone through because clearly, if I'm still here, I've defeated every single one or I haven't let any of them beat me yet. That's not to say it's not hard. It's very, very hard. And some days it's absolutely debilitating. But I'm still here and I'm still fighting. I'm fighting for me and I'm fighting for you too. Robin Williams is another classic example, I think. Um, His life's work revolved around bringing laughter and comedy and wholehearted love to his audiences. Did he look like mental illness? Did he, like, I'll never forget how sudden that felt, right? But I guess that's my point. And, like, we just don't, know what mental illness looks like right based on a common appearance of like seeing someone on the street we just don't know and when my therapist and I were first talking through possible eating disorders that might fit my symptomology she was pretty confident that anorexia was it for me and I kept telling her you know I don't think so my and like it just doesn't sound completely right and my therapist was drawing on her expertise and I definitely relied on that and I trusted her but I did have to ask the question are you sure because I'm not exactly super super thin that was my response and what she revealed to me this is super important is that not all people with anorexia are super super thin That was just my stereotype for anorexia. It's not a judgment. It was how when someone says anorexia, that's what I would think of. And I couldn't identify with what I knew about that. But that's why my therapist was smart not to just rule it out based on my physical appearance. There was more to it than simply how I looked. 
and I didn't end up being diagnosed with anorexia, as those of you who listened to the previous episode are aware of. But that does beg the question again, though. What does mental illness look like? And really, we should even be asking a different question, right? I don't even think we should be asking what does mental illness look like, right? Maybe we should be asking a different question because it doesn't look like any one thing. And I think that that's what I'm trying to convey in this episode is that I think we should redirect that question to sound more like, what can we do as individuals and as a community to be more accepting and accommodating of mental illness, How can we support each other instead of tearing each other down and making it the super taboo thing? Like why? We are all struggling. Why are we knocking each other down when we are all struggling with something? That literally makes no sense. No sense. At the end of the day, we are people that matter. You matter. Your loved ones matter. The people that you don't know still matter. I matter. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing that gets so overlooked so easily. And I hope that this is a good reminder to revive that fact for you. I've spent last month and a half or so really trying to come to terms with this whole eating disorder thing. And as I've done that, I will say that on this journey, um, this has felt more difficult for me personally, the eating disorder and like trying to figure this out than um, when I first came to terms with PTSD. And I think that part of that is because I know so much more and Therefore, I feel like I'm walking into a bigger world, whereas when I didn't know anything about PTSD, the world was very small. Um, And I think that as, again, a psychology major and someone who has kind of been on a similar journey of how to recover or survive getting a diagnosis of a disorder, um, I think having gone through that already and now just really trying to figure out how to accommodate that in my own life. Um, I think I've been really fixating on it again. And um, only in terms of, you know, not wanting to put the effort in, really just feeling like it's too big to tackle. It's definitely another Everest for me. Um, And I just want to be real with you um, because I don't, I'm not some superhuman that has already like gone through everything she's going to go through and now it's only up from here. I mean, you guys have heard me say that there are roller coasters on this journey and um, I've done a lot of journaling, um, which has really helped me kind of figure out where I'm coming from. And I got to tell you um, really quick and then I'll wrap up this episode. Uh, I was in therapy a few weeks ago. And my, <laughs> my counselor had me do this, uh, this particular exercise where I had to write a letter to my stomach. And to put this in context, because I thought it was really weird, um, but to put this into context, I, so anytime that I'm anxious, I feel super sick to my stomach. 
So a lot of times, like I, I was always very anxious. And so it was very common for me not to eat or to eat very little because I was feeling nauseous. Right. So I kind of, I didn't realize that I actually had this kind of like hate or grudge against my own stomach, against my own body. And my brain or like my mind was kind of at war with my stomach. And like, I don't know if that makes sense. This is just how I'm explaining my experience because I don't know how else to. But um, as I was journaling and trying to figure out how to answer that question, I realized that I actually had a big grudge and like a fear and a discomfort in the relationship that I had between my mind and my stomach, my brain and my body. And I was very emotional. I mean, I was bawling as I first wrote it and then had to um, read it to my counselor. And she walked me through this, uh, this exercise where um, I just like, I would put one hand on my stomach and I think the other I placed on my heart Uh, if I remember correctly. And she just kind of like walked me through this exercise. She had me like close my eyes, take some deep breaths um, and listen to her as she just kind of said, you know, we're thankful that, you know, the body, the stomach did everything that it did to get me through all of the traumas that I went through. And maybe it was, um, you know, hosting or taking on some of that uh, processing of the anxiety that I was experiencing as a kid and as a teenager um, because my brain didn't have the capacity, my mind didn't have the capacity to handle it. And so my stomach said, okay, I'm going like, to deal with some of that for you. But in return, I didn't give my body the nutrients. I didn't feed it. I didn't take care of it. I didn't give it the fuel necessary to help me out with that. And so it kind of felt like, you know, my, like, let's say, for example, I'm in a really scary situation and maybe there's like an external threat that I'm trying to process with my brain, but then maybe I'm getting nervous because I also feel like I'm going to throw up and my brain would kind of be like, are you serious right now? Like, I need you to stay focused. I need you to like not feel anything right now so that my brain can like fully focus and like process the threat at hand so I can figure out what to do, you know? And I don't know if that makes sense. That's literally, I think, just something that I developed in childhood. That was a dialogue that I developed as a child to cope with this seeming imbalance between um, my self-talk, if you will, and my stomach. But um, as she walked me through this and basically trying to mend this relationship and process and acknowledge like, okay, my stomach probably wasn't receiving everything it needed to in order to therefore take care of me. Therefore, you know, you know, maybe there was some neglect there and maybe my brain was feeling very hurt by the fact that, you know, it felt maybe very betrayed by the fact that my stomach didn't have the capacity to hold it together while I was dealing with some external threats. Basically, a miscommunication, if you will. And um, the point I'm trying to make here is that as she walked me through that, I let go of the fact that I thought it was really weird. And I was just like, you know what? Stranger things have worked for me. So like, I'm going to really get into this and I'm really going to feel this. I will not be able to fully explain what happened. But, and again, like I kind of feel silly saying this, but 
I have not felt nauseous at the time of anxiety since that point. That could be very much a placebo effect. We're still testing this out, but it has been a month and a half. No, sorry. That's been the total time. Sorry. It's been a couple of weeks. I think three weeks since this particular session. And I have not experienced any nausea due to, well, anything, um, particularly anxiety, um, since that point. And gosh, like I just, I don't even know how to tell you, but that is the first time in my life that that has ever happened. I have never gone three weeks without experiencing some kind of nausea, ever. So the progress is happening. A lot of it is happening very slowly, but I'll take the wins where I can get them. Um, again, that feels like kind of a silly story, but I want to share it with you in case it works for someone listening um, or maybe someone had a similar experience. And I don't think <laughs> that having like that particular experience is silly, but I like the exercise to me felt a little off, but you get, you, you get it, right? Um, the things we do in therapy to, the, to try and heal ourselves, what, I mean, it's whack, but you know, okay, I'm going to stop babbling now. I hope that that kind of made sense. And I hope that that was an update worth your while. Um, journaling has been my biggest advocate to get me through, um, and kind of help me find some clarity on how I'm truly feeling about, um, the whole eating disorder and the journey that it took to get me here and how this all came about. Um, so if that's something that you're struggling with, maybe you are experiencing some comorbidity and maybe that's really confusing for you. Or maybe you're curious about the fact that maybe there is something else in your life that, you know, could be diagnosable. I would say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of it because if you confront it, the only thing you're doing is moving forward and that's always the better direction. I promise. I'm not going to say it's easy like all the way. It will get harder before it gets easier, but I promise. Even right now, I'm in the midst of it being probably at the hardest point, but I promise I have already seen how progress is possible. So hang in there. Journal it out, talk to somebody, and just take a step for you. Because remember, mental illness looks different for everybody. That is all I have for you today. Flourishing with PTSD has some pretty exciting things coming up, so stay tuned for that. I promise that I haven't been a total bum um, this time that I have spent away from recording. So I have been uh, working on some pretty cool things that I'm excited for you guys to, uh, you know, hear, take part in, you know, you never know. Um, so keep listening, please. Uh, keep sharing the podcast. Keep writing reviews um, so that we can keep this conversation going. Again, I just think that it's so important and what a time to be talking about mental health when I think we're all working from a very similar foundation in the time of COVID right now. Um, So I will talk to you guys very soon. In the meantime, take care of yourselves, get lots of sleep, drink water, eat a little something, smile, talk to someone, and I will see you on the next episode. Talk to you later.